0: Hello, and welcome to the second bonus episode of the History Machine podcast, and this time we're going to start dealing with some fantasy world Game of Thrones. There's definitely spoilers ahead, so if you're not entirely up to date, there could be a problem here. So I am Niall, and my co-host is... Cahill. Hello. Yeah, if this is the first episode you've listened to, uh, we effectively run a neural network AI and it makes calculations based on data that's presented and tells us just kind of the stats and information about commanders, armies and units that are used in fiction and non-fiction. So, Carl, if you want to go a little bit more in depth and please explain the AI that's known as the history machine.
1: So, the history machine is an AI trained on database of Usually historical battles to determine what should have happened, you know, odds do they have to win, how many casualties should they have had, how many casualties should they have dealt out, how likely was it that they would die or get captured, and then compares the actual results to give them a score. This episode's a bit different because whereas normally we base our results off a database of actual historical battles, about three or 400 of them, this time we're basing it off almost 100 battles from the Song of Ice and Fire universe.
0: Yes. So most of this data has actually been picked up from the corresponding Song and Ice of Fire wikis and just some extra information found on the internet. So it's kind of a bit of a breath of fresh air to deal with data that is fictitious because it's usually fairly compound and universal yeah. and it's quite uniform in how it's presented.
1: If the data is not there, then you know that you're not going to waste an hour trying to find a better source. It's there, it isn't. And there aren't going to be competing sources, you know, some of whom exaggerate.
0: Reference Julius Caesar. So to get kicked off and to start, I suppose if you're not familiar with the series, there's a sequence of events that occurs and we're going to go through various stages of them. So a lot of this information is based really, really heavily on historical events. So obviously, George R. R. Martin, the author of the whole series, was definitely influenced by a lot of history. So there's some moments like uh, Viserys getting gold poured over his head. That's uh, actually a callback to Crassus, one of the triumphant members of Rome, who had something similar happen to him in Parthia. So a lot of the events that we do go through, they're definitely inspired by medieval or ancient history. And it really kind of has that nice flow and flavour to it. And it's all just presented as this nice fictitious package. With a lot of the earlier history set aside, the Age of Heroes, a lot of early mythology before the main events, we're going to focus and start our point from the conquest of Aegon Targaryen, first of his name, who will be a descendant of the Valyrians. He is positioned in an island called Dragonstone and he decides to invade Westeros with three dragons. He has three major battles that we will talk about and then there's a little bit of a following expedition. So the first is the burning of Harrenhal. Now, Carl, do you want to explain what Harrenhal is?
1: Harrenhal is the biggest castle. It's stupidly huge. It was built by King Harren. He, he just built a castle of, of ridiculous proportions, thinking, you know, that no one will ever conquer this.
0: To actually quote Tywin Lannister, a million men could have attacked these walls and a million men would have failed. But Aegon Targaryen had dragons. The history machine has found these things to be absolutely insane. I would almost treat them as massive flying siege engines, that they seem to just bypass any fortifications and destroy it completely. But Carl, would you like to go a little bit more in depth into what makes a dragon so powerful, what the history machine thinks about it? And actually, we had a hypothetical when we started this series of how many troops are worth a dragon. So could you explain, Kaho, just the breakdown of that, please?
1: Yeah, so... I suppose one of the things we were most curious about when we decided we'd do this episode is how the history machine would interpret dragons. Not something that exists in the real world, so we have to start the database from scratch. And uh, actually, on a side note, because that this hasn't been trained as long as the main database has, there's going to be some figures where it seems to cluster in certain regions that it hasn't pushed past. Some of the data, it you know, it, it's maybe not as accurate as you'd like. I know it's fictitious, but still. I, I think maybe... Between our recording this and putting up the episode, I might continue running it, so we might put those figures up on the website for you to look at. Just to see if there's any differences. From what we're talking about here. That aside, over with anyway. The History Machine, its conclusion on dragons seems to have been pretty accurate, in that they are just stupidly overpowered. You mentioned that quote, you know, a million men couldn't have taken down that castle. Uh, I decided out of curiosity to run simulations to see, like, how many men would equal one dragon. Again, he's mentioned, like, George R. R. Martin, he drew a lot from historical things. I decided to base it on what would a typical Western European army look like from the late Middle Ages, say something like Hundred Years' War or War of the Roses, big influence for a lot of War of the Five Kings, that kind of ratio of infantry to cavalry to archers. Decided to see how many men would you need before it equaled one dragon. Now, I set my limit for this at a million. It hit that limit, and it still wasn't 50-50. It just said, you know what, you cannot defeat a dragon With a conventional army, some other weaponry, you need some other advantage if it's just dragons in a field, no fortifications, uh, no siege engines, no artillery, uh, no magic, you know. Yeah, they just can't, they can't damage it.
0: Okay, so it is effectively limitless. It doesn't matter how many men, this is like a typical uh, medieval army it's almost like you say like how many men does it take to beat a, a fighter jet a dragon is just worth so much so we mentioned the burning of Harrenhal was when Aegon the Conqueror flew in with his black dragon burnt the place down destroyed that family so yeah
1: Harrenhal with the most ridiculous defenses that had ever been created uh, to the point that no one subsequently could even afford to maintain the castle or you know its ruins that was worth about Slightly under 2.5% chance. The, the wins over expectation for Aegon the Conqueror in the Burning of Harrenhal was point zero two four. So, in other words, it was more than 97.5% sure that he was going to win this. Oh, my God. So, the biggest castle the world had ever seen. Yeah. Considering that a conventional army mm. basically gives you zero advantage, the fortification gave you 2.5%
0: chance, nearly.
1: Jesus Christ. Uh... So yeah, the, the summary is, don't mess with dragons.
0: So after the burning of Harrenhal, Aegon the Conqueror moves on and decides to take on Storm's End, the uh, fortress uh, that would be the area that the Baratheons would eventually hold. This is the Stormlands. Uh, now the Baratheons actually, are, funny enough, are rumoured to be a bastard half-brother family of Aegon the Conqueror. And funnily enough, later down in our timeline, when the Baratheons take over, that connection, centuries later, will be used to claim the Iron Throne. Really loose connection, but that's like one of the ones of, uh, you know, we won this civil war, we're moving on, this is why we're in charge of the Iron Throne now. Uh, so the half-brother is named Oris Bar- uh, Baratheon, and by taking Storm's End and moving in there, they will become the new Storm Lords and will effectively will be in charge of that area for centuries to come. The next... And most important pivotal battle, and this will result in the surrender of many of the noble houses of Westeros to the invaders, this will be the Field of Fire. King Meris Targaryen of the Reach and Lorian Lannister of the Rock, uh, both descendants of House Lannister obviously, and the Gardiner House that no longer exists for upcoming reasons, they will combine their armies together and they will outnumber Aegon five to one. This is going to be the first and last time that Aegon's going to use three dragons in a battle. The result is just going to be a huge roasting of men in a wide open dry wheat field that is just set ablaze by dragon fire and every other kingdom with the exception of Dorne will immediately surrender upon seeing this and uh, swear fealty after this event to the Targaryen invaders. Now, as Carl, as you mentioned before, a million men would not actually compare to these dragons. And in a case of just being outnumbered five to one, you have three dragons, which we can't even put a figure on dragons yeah. for a medieval army. It hasn't even capped out yet. The idea being, if we said a dragon was worth a million men, then it's as if Aegon brought three million men to this battlefield. It is absolute madness. There's no way they could have stood no, a chance. This is
1: actually, I think, a first for this podcast where the odds it gave uh, Aegon were 100%. <laughs> it, it was, there is no way he's not winning this.
0: Um, we just want to mention there is a margin of error of 1%. <laughs> Even with the d-
1: killing 5,000 people and killing half of the commanders involved, it felt that Aegon actually killed about 40% fewer people than expected, really killed below what it expected in terms of the enemy commanders. It really thinks it should have killed, you know, all of them. Oh my God. Arguably an underperformance. Oh, that's insanity. Um, in that absolute massacre. So the end, the end result across those three battles, Aegon is one of the most mediocre generals, according to the history machine, because he had dragons, and that is just cheating. So the final wins over expectation is...
0: Okay, so, like, he is no
1: better than the standard commander. Almost perfectly average. Didn't take casualties, which was nice, but... Fair enough. Like, really just almost perfectly average in all the other stats.
0: So to wrap up the conquest of Aegon Targaryen, the Dornish people, this is from the Kingdom of Dorne, they are the only ones who have not sworn fealty yet to the Targaryens, so they decide to invade them. Now, Dorne is very similar to Egypt from our first episode in the sense of they are geographically isolated. They do have a desert surrounding their area. They're quite insular to a certain extent, and they have that kind of, um, of, a, of an eastern feel to them, just in terms of what they're being inspired by. Now, they will proceed to use guerrilla tactics and never directly engage the Targaryens in open battle. There is a situation where they get a few lucky arrows during an engagement, between Renere's Targaryen, who is riding Meraxes, and that's one of the three dragons, and a lucky arrow flies and hits the dragon's eye. The dragon falls to the ground, is killed, that's it, and so does the rider Reneres. And that is the only situation that we have seen to date where a dragon has died, and it really feels like uh, a million to one chance that a dragon would die in that situation. It just happened to be a lucky fluke arrow that hit a dragon in the eye, that was it. Now, following it up, we have a campaign that's known as the Dragon's Wrath. And this was a campaign by Aegon and Visenya Targaryen. It is to avenge the death of their sister Rhaenyraes. This is a series of attacks against the population of Dorne. Uh, the exception is the area of Sunspear. And this is, let's say, the capital of, of Dorne. And they hoped for a popular uprising, but this, like, tremendously backfired. So ultimately, due to the guerrilla tactics, not engaging the Targaryens in open battle, scattering their forces, and Targaryen logistical issues over the desert... Dorne is the only place to retain its independence. And later in the series, it will effectively come into the Seven Kingdoms and join with it. But that is why you see in the books that the Dorns are often, they're not referred to as lords, they're princes and princesses. And it's because they have retained their royal status. So, uh, Cahill, with all of that in summary, we have talked about Aegon Targaryen and his, uh, his campaign. And it does seem to be relatively mediocre. The whole thing was expected. It is literally, we're, it's like we're dropping... A nuclear bomb into the yeah, medieval exactly. world and just kind of saying here you've got you've got several nukes yeah good luck use them see how you do yeah. um, so after that I'm going to just do a little bit of a brief summary of a couple of events and we'll move on to something that's a little bit more important but there's a couple of years of relative peace the faith militant uh, uprising occurs after Aegon dies and his family practice incestual marriages it's not unheard of in history uh, it does happen several times to keep bloodlines pure and make sure that royal families stay you know, effectively stay royal.
1: I'd say actually probably a good historical analogy perhaps for uh, for the Targaryens maybe generally might be the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt in that they very much kind of kept to themselves and they yes. kept their own culture within this country they had conquered. And uh, you do get a bit of incest in there too, now and again.
0: True, true, true. Mm -hmm. But one of the notes I want to mention here is that King Maegor Targaryen had a trial by seven. So that's the ritual trial by combat, but there were seven participants on each side. The King's Guard are used here, uh, but the end result is the only survivor is King Maegor himself. And after the event, he decides to hop on a dragon and burn the surrounding area and he ends the faith having a military army. And this kind of faith militant feels very similar to like how the popes in the medieval ages would have had personal armies or private armies. But after that, we do have relative peace for some time. So we push on a couple of years, a couple of centuries, and we move on to an event known as the Dance of Dragons. It is the first Targaryen civil war. And even me saying the first will imply there's going to be a couple more. Uh, So it's between two factions of House Targaryen, the Blacks and the Greens. It is going to result in the death of almost every Targaryen dragon. In the end, the result is going to be a victory for the green faction, only later to have an assassination of the head of the greens, and then they'll put a child king from the black faction back on the Iron Throne. So the entire event was completely pointless, but effectively it did just remove dragons from the equation in Westeros and will let a lot of future events be possible to actually occur. As you were mentioning, call with the database, when we have dragon-on-dragon dragon combat, I imagine it's, the, it's apples and apples now. We can make direct comparisons to how well people perform. Yeah, this
1: is worth noting simply, for the fact that it's dragon versus dragon, so we actually have Targaryens who get valid scores that aren't just trending towards zero.
0: Both sides have
1: nuclear warheads. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the basically the highest rank to come out of this was Amund, uh Targaryen, with five battles, uh four wins in a draw, and he came out with 0.174 wins over expectation, which, you know, is very it's not All it's right. not like super amazing. Uh, you know, it's not like one of the greats, but that would put him firmly in good. That's, you know, significantly above average. Okay. Uh, Strong results, yeah. strong casualties dealt over expectation at 0.27 and
0: doesn't take that many himself. Um, okay. So after the Dance of Dragons, there is something referred to as the Blackfire Rebellions. So King Aegon IV of his name Targaryen uh, legitimized all of these bastards on his deathbed Now, I'm going to put a little bit of a side note here. When dealing with the Targaryens, they have a super Carthaginian feel to them, as in everybody's named Aegon or Ares. They have a handful of names for the lexicon. So because there's so many of them over a three or four hundred year period, it just like they just fall into that category of like, oh, yeah, same name, Aegon, 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 really, really (laughs) weird situation. That's what they definitely have in common with the Carthaginians, like the Hannibals, the Hamilcars, and the, the Magos. But anyway, this led, after the legitimization to the bastards on his deathbed, many of the Targaryen bastards who were called Blackfires. You have the various bastard names in Game of Thrones, like there's snow, there's sand, there's uh, storm, depending on where you, you live, but every Targaryen bastard is referred to as a Blackfire. All of the Blackfires upon this Legitimization of the deathbed now effectively had legitimate claims to the Iron Throne. And at this time, the few remaining dragons that were left had withered away in and had become obsolete or extinct. So dragons are no longer in the equation. We're back to pure manpower. Now, the Blackfires would continue to try and retake the Iron Throne. And almost a century after legitimizing the bastards, uh, the last living member of the Blackfires, Malays Blackfire, would be killed in battle in single combat. By Barriston Selmy. Now you might remember him if you are watching Game of Thrones as the Kingsguard member who's a little bit older. He was the commander of the Kingsguard and he ended up moving over and joining Daenerys in her conquests and campaigns. He ends the claim of the Blackfire clan, and this conflict is known as the War of the Ninepenny Kings. And in that war, we have a couple of big names join the database and stretch over across. Sir Barristan Selmy is one of them. It introduces our new young impressive commander called Tywin Lannister. Now a little bit of a backstory to him. His father was named Titus Lannister. He almost destroyed the family's wealth and status in foolish money handling and even worse political behaviour. He's the laughing stock of Westeros, and the young Tywin Lannister would inherit Castley Rock, and after this handover, there would be open rebellion by two of his vassals, House Tarbeck and House Rain. And Tywin would ultimately obliterate these two factions and return House Lannister to the status quo as the dominant house in the Westerlands. So, Cahill, do you want to talk a little bit about the fall of Tarbeck Hall and the end of House Reigns?
1: fall of Tarbeck Hall, which is kind of you know, our main introduction to Tywin, introduces us to the concept that you do not mess with Tywin Lannister. Casualties dealt over expectation were... 0.25 which is pretty high what's that roughly in a percentage 25 percent higher than you'd expect the wins over expectation really it's not that high in other words they should not have messed with them in the first place uh-huh. yeah the rebelling factions were totally crushed and this led to the reigns of castamir song becoming the thing basically reminding everyone don't mess with tywin
0: we might do a little bit of a side note about Tywin Lannister. He then becomes the Hand of the King for Ares II of his name Targaryen. This is the Mad King, if you follow the series. And he would serve him for 20 years and prove to be really the administrative, political and financial genius in the process. Now, Tywin Lannister is one of these really strange characters and is probably based on a bunch of historical geniuses. People who are just like really, really capable people. And you, you imagine that if you could bring them back to... ...almost any situation and put them in a position of power, they would do well. He's that well-rounded, polished individual that's like intelligent, that's witty, um, as I said, can manage things like politics, money, military affairs, logistics. He's got the whole package. Everything is there for him. And we see that he is pretty much an adept military commander as well... But I really want to stress behind the scenes that the figures we will end up using for Tywin Lannister and showing that he shows he's particularly good, they almost pale in comparison just to his general strategic behaviour and how well he performs in that regards. Because the history machine, for all of its worth, and the amount of work we put into it, and the amount of information it can tell us, it is very much a tactical machine. It will weigh how tactically well you're supposed to do. We might have some commanders that are strategically, like, idiots, but they will have a decent tactical score. But Tywin Lannister is one of these rare situations where you do have that all-round polished individual. He'd make a great ruler, he'd make a great king, he'd make a great administrative figure. You could slot him into almost any position and he'll be fine. And he'll do very well. So after that, we have a little bit of a peace time as well. So Tywin Lannister is starting to make his name. He's been the Hand of the King for 20 years. King Aerys II gets a little bit jealous, dismisses him. And we're going to lead to Robert's Rebellion. This is Robert Baratheon. Effectively, Robert's Rebellion begins when there's the abduction of Lyanna Stark by Rhaegar Targaryen, the Prince Apparent. After that, uh, Lords Brandon and Rickard Stark are burnt alive and strangled by the Mad King Aerys. So the major houses Baratheon, Stark, Arryn and Tully would form an open rebellion against the Iron Throne. Meanwhile, our Tywin Lannister will stay neutral almost all of the campaign. So Robert Baratheon is a pretty unique character in a sense that he's quite young. He's a little bit bold, ambitious and he is going to be in the open rebellion against the Targaryen throne. There are no dragons anymore. They do stand a very good chance. So to begin with Robert there's a couple of battles we want to cover. The first is the Battle of Summerhall and this is probably one of his most glorious achievements. He will be engaged in three battles in a single day his absolute swiftness and his use of night marches and just the general rapidity of his campaign. This is going to define the whole conflict. He will only lose once and this will be to House Tarly at the Battle of Ashford. That Tarly who beats him is the father of Sam Tarly, the fellow on the wall. Now, we do have a fairly unique situation in the sense that there's three battles in one day. So because of the quick rapidity and succession of it, you're going to have tired and fatigued units. You're going to have... Uh, but they are battle-hardened. So, Carl, with all of that in mind, what kind of figures are we looking at here? Each battle taken individually,
1: he has a reasonably solid chance. He has maybe like a two-thirds chance to win each of them. problem is he's, he's fighting three, one after the other. So if you consider it as like, what are his odds of fighting three battles and not losing any of them. That drops down to about 27% chance that he...
0: Oh, wow.
1: So that is very good going.
0: That's actually amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's slightly ridiculous. Bobby B, his overall rating in terms of wins over expectation is uh, 0.21, which is very high. What, like he, That puts him kind of joint top five. Had he not lost that single battle at Ashford, though, he would have been the joint best.
0: Oh, wow. That's fantastic.
1: He would have have actually been, like, you know, within margin of error, he would have been the joint best general. So, Randall Tarley just moved him from maybe first place down to fifth, which, uh, gotta hurt the pride there.
0: Good job, Randall did You did what you were meant to do. Meanwhile, Stannis Baratheon, the younger brother of Robert... He's going to hold Storm's End for a year and the bumbling mace Tyrell is going to keep them bogged down but never successfully stormed the fortress so this is a really important strategic and tactical victory for the Rebellion. So while Bobby B, as we're going to call him, is uh, crowning himself in glory, running around, smashing armies, rushing from place to place to, to battle to battle, Stannis Baratheon is bogged down in like a super defensive war. Try to make sure we do not lose Storm's End. It is way too important. Now, Stannis is going to come back to us later. And I do want to say a little bit about Stannis in a sense of I know there are book readers out there. And uh, the series has not really reflected healthily on Stannis later. But a lot of people, they will hold him as like a really fair and just and rightful king. Just not popular. And he is possibly one of the best commanders out there. And we'll go into the stats later about it. Now, we have included some of his later battles, which probably affect to a certain extent. But... Even with that in mind, we're going to bog down with Stannis and go into some of his uh, figures later in the line when uh, he, he becomes a king of his own. But for now, this is a very important tactical and strategic victory for him. He really sets the bar for his performance later here in a sense that he was able to really hold that out and not get absolutely overrun by the Tyrells. With all that in mind... The penultimate battle is going to be the Battle of the Trident. This is where Robert, our Bobby B's forces, they're going to engage the Iron Throne led by Prince Rhaegar. And this will result in a single combat between Robert and Rhaegar fighting on the Trident, which is a river uh, in Westeros. And Robert will cave in the prince's chest with a hammer blow. This will result in a mass rout and a clear victory for the rebellion. So Kahol, with in mind the Trident, the battle, this is going to be the big one where the forces of House Stark, House Tully... House Baratheon and the Vale of Arryn, they're going to take on a combined force of Targaryens, Dornishmen, and uh, other bannermen who are loyal to the crown. What were the odds for this?
1: As almost exactly 50-50. Very significant. The casualties that Robert dealt out. Because like 50-50 battle, you know, you can win that and still not do terribly well, but he dealt almost 60% more casualties than expected, while taking 30% fewer himself. So he really... Destroyed them in this one. And this was the one that really made his reputation, I think.
0: Now, just a side note about the history machine itself it's actually quite good at predicting a certain amount of hype and just recording, you know, a a commander and an army type that it has been successful throughout the history of, of information. So when it does look at Robert, we might say there was a 50 50 chance of winning. But if you look at the figures, he is outnumbered. Rhaegar has brought similar troops to the battlefield. However, Roberts are battle hardened, they're veterans, and that has been taken into account as well. And because of that, that's why it's still a 50-50 coin flip. This is the same army that won three battles in a single day. It's the one that has only had one loss on its record. It's about to take on an army that's relatively green in terms of ability and what they can do. And uh, I think the results have effectively spoken for themselves in a sense that that uh, Robert Baratheon, our Bobby B, was able to really do it. ...and hammer home the victory. Now, after this, our sneaky Tywin Lannister will march on King's Landing. He offers assistance to the Mad King. He wants to enter the city and effectively defend it. However, he will then proceed to sack it, killing uh, killing thousands of people. And then he will have the children of Rhaegar killed... And I know we've said spoiler alert at the very start, but if you were a book fan, some of those children actually survived that situation, and it's very important to the the novel. But uh, in the television series, that has seemed to be dropped entirely, so it's it's a it's a non-event. But uh, Tywin Lannister will have the children of Rhaegar killed. Princess Martell is well killed. Who the Viper, if you remember, in season four the Viper of Dorne will have his trial by combat against the mountain and uh, get a little bit too cocky. So that's what he was trying to avenge in that situation. After this, there's one more battle, the assault on Dragonstone. It's the last part of the rebellion. Stannis Baratheon is going to be given a strategic loss, but a tactical win because he takes Dragonstone, but the escape of the remaining Targaryen royal family escape, and that is Viserys and our Daenerys Targaryen as well. But I suppose there is an end point for a few of the commanders here. So let's talk about Bobby B, Robert Baratheon. How is he looking? How is he scoring?
1: So yeah, Robert Baratheon, seven battles, six wins, 0.21 wins over expectation, which had he not lost, he would have been uh, joined first. Casualties dealt on average is roughly to expectation. But as I mentioned, the Trident has one of the highest over expectation where he just wiped out the enemy army. Dealt 60% more casualties than expected. And he also has a very high rate of taking out the enemy commander. Uh, and again, in that battle, he did that personally one-on-one. The average battle, it's maybe like a one in twenty chance that, that one of the commanders dies. Battles against him, that goes up to
0: 45%. Oh wow. So. so he's pretty he's pretty good. He can really hold his own. Yeah. So shortly after that. Uh, In fact, seven years later, after this rebellion ends, House Greyjoy, and these are the Iron Islanders, will be an open rebellion against the new rulers, the Baratheons. There will be a series of successful uh, sacks and raids, and they will only then eventually be beaten back to the Iron Islands and submit. Now, this rebellion actually strengthens the position of the Baratheons. It's a little bit of an interesting side note. It's just something you want to put in there. We could go into some of the figures, but there's not really any standouts at the moment. It just really follows a series of the Greyjoys do a bit of raiding, they're beaten back by the Baratheons and the rest of Westeros. It's a very one-sided victory, incredibly stupid, probably strategic, strategically and tactically by the Greyjoys, but it's a little bit of a note to put in there because it, it is an event. So we'll kind of glance over that and move on to the part that most people have seen when they're watching the TV series or reading the books, The War of the Five Kings. So after the capture of Tyrion Lannister and the arrest of Ned Stark, five kings are proclaimed. There's King Joffrey, Stannis and Renly Baratheon, King Balon Greyjoy and King Robert Stark. So these are the big five that are going to be involved in the total total overall rebellion. Um, Some of them have better claims than others. For example, Renly technically should have absolutely no claim regardless. Stannis has a claim on the grounds that Joffrey is not actually a Baratheon. Joffrey has a claim that he is a true-born son. King Balon Greyjoy is just doing another Greyjoy rebellion and you're going to see a kind of the definition of insanity. And uh, Robert Stark, who is um, King of the North, would be proclaimed by his bannermen in a sense of, if we're going to go into open rebellion, we might as well have royalty again. Uh, Spoiler alert again, but the beheading of Ned Stark and the capture of Jaime Lannister are going to result in the continuation of the war. Robert Stark... He's going to continue a series of victories, and these include the Battle of the Green Fork, the Battle of the Whispering Wood, the Battle of the Camps, the Battle of the Oxcross, the Sack of Ashemark, and the Battle of the Yellow Fork. Now, eventually, Robert Stark will be assassinated in the event known as the Red Wedding. This will be a plot by Tywin Lannister, and it will be executed by House Frey, and it will result effectively in the end of Robert's uh, campaign. But let's move in to Robert Stark and talk a little bit about the King of the North the first king in centuries. And let's look at some of his stats and some of his information. So he has a lot of battles to go by. We listed them just earlier there. But Cahill, what is his most impressive win?
1: Most impressive win, which I believe as well was his final one, was the Battle of the Yellow Fork. Now, not necessarily the most significant or crushing battle, but in this one, History Machine only gave him about a one third chance to win it. In this one, he dealt about 30% more casualties than expected, took 20% less. And he just does demonstrate a lot of consistency he had five wins out mm-hmm. of five battles and really you can just see this one as being the moment they weren't going to defeat him in battle because he just kept winning again and again they were going to have to use uh, more underhanded means
0: unconventional underhanded means yeah makes perfect sense
1: his wins over expectation is 0.353 and that puts him in joint first place
0: in a, in the total database we have so I, far, I have yeah.
1: to you know say it was it was tragic and shocking and all all that you know when we watched it or read it. But uh, the red wedding, they were right to do it. He was he was a tough person to take on.
0: <laughs> that is a tough cookie, and we gotta crack him. Pretty
1: much, and uh, of course, uh, a recurring theme. Even in that, you look at the other stats, and like he's very suited to the situation. Yeah, uh, one of the issues for the Northerners obviously was that they were regularly outnumbered; like they couldn't. They didn't have the same resource the other, you know, the, the Lannisters did, obviously. But um, he, his casualties sustained above expectation. He took almost 40% fewer casualties than you'd expect. Oh, excellent. Which is very good. And mentioning as well, joint first, one of the other people who's on that level, um, <laughs> I mean, did betray him at the end, but was his subcommander, was Roose Bolton. In the end, disloyal, but, you know, it did help him at times, but also one of the strongest generals in the database.
0: That's fantastic, yeah. So let's mention a little bit about Roose Bolton. He is a vassal house of House Stark. He will be involved in the plot in the Red Wedding and, and will become the Warden of the North for the Baratheon Iron Throne. This is under King Joffrey and allied with Tywin Lannister. After his battles with Rob, which he's involved in quite a few of them, he will move north and take over a sequence of various forts and retake Winterfell and move there. But if we talk about Roose Bolton He does, along with his bastard son, Ramsay Snow, who he eventually legitimises in the series, they move up north, they relocate to Winterfell, they take it over. They are now the new heads of, of the north. About Roose Bolton, I'm looking at some of the stats and information about him here. What looks like he really stands out is, if he gets the chance... And, and he does at times, he will kill you and everyone you love in terms of battlefield tactics. Yeah. And actually, he will slaughter everybody. He, does, he
1: has one of the highest uh, command, en- enemy casualties uh, dealt out of anyone. Yes. Like, you know, he's, he's top six. And one of the few people that exceeds him is Ramsay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, you know, stay out of the Dreadfort. Uh, just, just stay away do cap and also both of them have very high enemy commander kills or captures above expectation oh right between the two of them they're averaging like a 50 percent chance that they will kill or capture one of
0: one of the commanders campers. yes now there have been several uh, situations like the uh moat cailin attack where they do get all of the remaining uh gray supporters that are left there the iron islanders and they flay them alive and kill the commander so well the com- in fairness The commander is killed before they're taken, but it's still a situation where you're not getting out alive. If you're against the Boltons, you are not getting out alive. That's proven if they win, so we'll come back to that later. So Roose Bolton is really showing to be quite the dangerous and and powerful commander, and somebody you wouldn't really want to mess with. Meanwhile, Stannis is going to have Renly, who's, you know, not exactly the best now when it comes to this. Uh, Stannis will have Renly assassinated. He'll proceed to march on King's Landing This will bring us to the Battle of the Blackwater. So if you watched season two, this is really an important scene. And this is like the Helm's Deep of the series, where we're going to have a huge mixture of like a cross naval battle come to a siege, come to attack. And eventually there'll be a relief force from Tywin Lannister. So let's look at some of the stats. How did Stannis Baratheon fare when he first invaded? What does it look like for him to win?
1: In this one, it gave him... 50 50 chance to win he did have the superior army but against big fortifications
0: in the end that you know that
1: those defenses prevailed big loss for him because it did still you know it was it was very hard to call but it was still winnable uh, according to the history machine it's worth mentioning because Stan Sparathian, his final wins over expectation across everything is 0.22 and actually it was during the war of five kings and everything that he did his best work, because as we mentioned, he was kind of stuck during Robert's Rebellion. Yes. Mostly involved in that siege. And you know his his battles, even though he, he won his battles, they were ones that either the History Machine expected him to win or because he was tied down for so long, he didn't get involved in as many as you'd expect. He, he was really underutilized. Had he won the Battle of Blackwater, had he even drawn it, he would have been ranked as the best commander by the History Machine by a good distance
0: yeah huge so, upset oh wow so this would have he would have put it well effectively in the series and in the books he would have put himself on the iron yep. throne and that's yep. it i'm here so, and the, the rebellion's over
1: both in plot line and in nerdy data analysis hmm. he would have prevailed had he had he just won that
0: wow so even with that in mind then like it was all down to a coin yeah. flip in the end and if he had gotten that that was it he <laughs> like he would have been the most important person So the remaining two kings, we have Balon Greyjoy and we have King Joffrey. Uh, Balon Greyjoy will die under mysterious circumstances after falling from a rope bridge. In the TV series, he's pushed from it and immediately that information is given away. Doesn't really make sense, but that's when we start to see a little bit of a a downward ability in terms of the writers.
1: While we're on the note of both his death and also areas where I think a lot of people would argue it started to decline as they got further away from the books. Mm. I'd like to mention you're in Greyjoy. Of any commander in our database who appeared in the TV show, he is the worst. (laughs) Wins over expectation is minus 0.312. So he is very nearly as bad as Rob Stark is good. Oh, wow. 30% more likely to lose than the average commander.
0: Dear God, why'd you even bother?
1: Yeah, he just does not uh he doesn't win.
0: Now the the remaining king the last one in the War of the Five Kings is King Joffrey. He'll be involved to a small extent in the Battle of Blackwater, but he will die in an event known as the Purple Wedding. That pretty much sums up him. He's a little bit of a mad king, he's pretty insane. Uh, he's not exactly a likable character, so a lot of people are very delighted to have him removed.
1: Here we may as well finish off as well Tywin, because mm-hmm. he was the one doing the commanding on Joffrey's behalf. And Tywin, he's been involved in multiple different wars. He's been going for decades. Now we may as well go through properly his stats, because I think he is arguably the best commander in the whole thing. Oh, wow. Uh, his wins over expectation it's 0352 it's like point zero zero one below Rob Stark. It's well within the margin of error, so that they're tied. You go through every other stat, and he is flying it. His uh, commander kills dealt over expectation almost
0: sixty <laughs> percent. He's almost sixty percent more likely than the average commander to kill the enemy one. Wow.
1: He loses his own commanders twenty percent less than than the average. Casualties dealt over expectation is the highest. He deals out forty-two percent more casualties than you'd expect on average. He takes thirty percent fewer himself. He has seven wins out of seven battles, which is the longest unbeaten run of anyone in the database. Yeah, I think I think the the real summary for Tywin is just as we said earlier: you don't don't mess with him.
0: Yeah, don't mess with Tywin Lannister. I suppose that the reigns of Castamere now the reigns we over their hall, but no one left to hear pretty much sums them up like there's nobody if, if Tywin Lannister also gets the chance along with Roose Bolton and they form a little coalition they will kill everyone you love and everyone you <laughs> you uh you adore so so it yeah sure as will. I said um if we engage in battle we should wipe out the whole army here if we get the chance we should just take everybody out leave no chances leave no stone unturned end houses end reigns end rebellions Uh, He really stands up. And as you said, he's possibly one of the joint wins for the top commander. Now, unfortunately, if we did run the neural network a little bit longer, we'd have a bit more information and it might get a bit more clarity on who it thinks is a little bit better. But he's... Up there, and he's up there for a good, good reason.
1: At time of recording, he is. If we continue running it, though, that he might end up on top fully as as it gets more clarity on how to treat the different statistics.
0: Yes, and there are a few other what ifs in terms of like if Stannis Baratheon won at the Blackwater, if Robert Baratheon wasn't defeated the Battle of Ashford. There's a lot of what ifs, but in the actual series and the information that we have, Tywin Lannister is probably the brightest flame here. So. Eventually, after the War of the Five Kings, we're going to move on to somebody who is in the eastern part of the world. They have escaped. They are a Targaryen. She's going to, like, unlock or recruit three dragons uh, by hatching them. And that is our Queen Daenerys I Targaryen. We are going to talk about her conquests, including the Sack of Astapor, the Battle of Yunkai, and the Siege of Marine. With that in mind, she does have dragons, but they're not militarily usable yet. There's probably a certain amount of political sway that's involved by having them, in a sense of she actually tries to trade one for an army and successfully gets an, an army of unsullied by doing it. But these early battles will determine how well she does because eventually when she gets dragons that's going to change the situation. But let's talk about Queen Danny, who in the books is 14 when she starts and in the series is meant to be like 18 or 19. So she is a young queen regardless of how you look at it. How is she looking for her battles?
1: So Daenerys Stormborn, a Paris Targaryen, first of her name, Queen of the Andals, the First Men, Protector of the Seven Kingdoms, the Mother of Dragons, the Ghalicia, Great Grass Sea, the Unburnt, the Breaker of Chains. Yes. Has win-, win over expectation of 0.179. So good. It's it's not the best, but I will say, like later on she is using dragons, and once that kicks in, she's really not getting ex- any any real credit.
0: Any bonuses here? Yeah, yeah. The credit's attributed to the dragons.
1: When you factor in that there are a few of those battles where, like, it's not really adding to her score, that's a very good score. She has the most battles of anyone in the database with 10, of which she won 8. Nice. And I think her most notable stat, anyway, is commander kills dealt above expectation. She will take out an enemy commander about 50% of in her battles. Nice. Uh, which is very high. I, this is this is one of the areas I have to say where you notice the difference between the real world battles and the Game of Thrones ones. Like it is true in Game of Thrones, there's a lot of big characters die very frequently. You're seeing that worn out in the commander kill statistics here. I think a lot of the top generals have taken out a lot of the other ones.
0: The history machine's like, what's going on? Everybody is killing everybody. Yeah, so she's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. And she's involved effectively in the liberation of Slaver's Bay. She moves on eventually, uh, now this is the point where the books and the series differ, she acquires up to 100,000 Dothraki horsemen. She retakes Marine, and then she sails over to Westeros. And we're going to move on a little bit and go back to some of the events in Westeros. We only kind of a little bit touched on Danny, but we're going to have the conflict beyond the wall, where our puppy-eyed Jon Snow is a member of the Night's Watch and he's going to participate in a few attacks north of the wall against some invading wildlings and eventually some invading white walkers as well this will include the battle of the fist of the first men and the battle of castle black and eventually hard home so let's talk about probably the most important character or one of the most important characters left in the series let's look at Jon snow as a whole this will include his early career his later career the battle of the bastards and up until the current battles how is Jon snow looking so
1: this is an interesting one because obviously hugely important character and you know what on paper like Six wins out of seven battles, uh, including, you know, a couple of those battles being against undead, like, it should be really good, but his wins over expectation, it's almost exactly average, which is surprisingly mediocre, but I think there are a few reasons for this. If you look at his early career... It's mostly him against the Free Folk. It's him against the Wildlings. And really, you know, Mm -hmm. know that they're outnumbered, but they have huge fortifications in the Wall and Castle Black.
0: Yes, technological advantages. Yeah, they're they're not a tribal Mm. organization.
1: They are, you know, fully, fully organized, know-how-to-fight battles. Mm -hmm. So really, the History Machine expects him to win those. And then you get into some of the later battles he's involved in, and, well, he's fighting with Daenerys, so there's at least one dragon on his side. While he gets good results... The history machine just isn't that impressed because it thinks really he should win most of the time. The exception being obviously against, you know, fighting against the Night King. But maybe the history machine hasn't fully figured out how to handle that information. Because it it doesn't have the capability to say, these are the Night King's starting units. Also, he gains these ones as he resurrects ones throughout. You know, it's everyone who dies on Jon Snow's side, they have a
0: chance to join
1: the opposite side afterwards.
0: That's true, that's true. Yeah, or during battle. I
1: think maybe if, if it learned that those distinctions, he might get a bit of a better rating. But as it stands, Jon Snow, pretty much middle of the pack here. Okay, wow.
0: Not quite the run to the litter, but, you know, he's he's not, nothing too special at the moment. All right, so surpri- yeah. as you said, surprisingly mediocre. Very surprising, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is quite surprising. But I suppose, considering the amount of commanders that are left dead and are no longer entities or threats... Being relatively average is probably a decent thing to be near the end. So one last character, we've mentioned him several times, but I want to mention him again because this is going to be the end of his appearance, Stannis Baratheon. Stannis Baratheon, during the conflict beyond the Wall, will be involved effectively in transporting his units north of the Wall and taking on the wildling army and utterly obliterating them. So he does have the technological advantages, the armour, the cavalry, but this is going to be the second last battle of Stannis before he, in the series, and it hasn't happened yet in the books, but he's going to march on Winterfell, be horribly outnumbered, surrounded, enveloped, and destroyed. And then g- killed. So Stannis, this is his last time to shine. This is the last bit of his information. He's going to disappear from us. So let's talk about how well he has finished up with his career. How are we looking at Stannis the Manus?
1: I have to say he finished up very strongly. Not only was this battle against Wildings, not only was it considered his least likely win. Mm. It was considered the least likely win of anything in our database. Whoa! In addition, he dealt out more than 50% more casualties than expected and 80% more commander kills than expected. Yes. See, so the history machine expected him to lose 70% more men than he did, nearly.
0: Excellent, excellent.
1: So this was really, this is one of the most impressive battles in the whole database.
0: Just because the sheer numbers. And this is why
1: Stannis is the man.
0: Fair enough. And I suppose he's not fortified. He has decided to face them on open ground. He does have the heavy cavalry. They do rout. He does defeat the wildlings and get them to run. But they have a decent commander in the sense of uh, they do have the king beyond the wall, King Mance Raider. He would have a certain amount of knowledge on how warfare is meant to be. And Stannis just kind of takes any any advantage the wildlings might have had in terms of numbers and blows it away. It's like, there we go. This is how, this is how you properly envelop. Straight up ambush, take them out, Deal with it they're done. He has the most surprising win which is very impressive. So eventually he does march to Winterfell, in the process loses all of his cavalry along the way which he used for that fantastic win over the wildlings. He is defeated by Roose Bolton and Ramsay Snow who in their typical fashion if they beat you they kill everybody. So they did. So our stannis has actually shown to be quite the comparable commander and now he's gone, he's removed from our database, he's no longer an entity, no longer viable for the the Iron Throne. So we're going to talk a little bit back to Jon Snow about the Battle of the Bastards in which it will be him against just Ramsay Snow this time, with a Roose Bolton disappeared. Where initially Jon Snow will have less cavalry, less troops, will engage Bolton and the Karstark houses as well. In open battle will result in a cavalry charge that will effectively kill most of Jon Snow's cavalry. This is an interesting battle because if you've listened to some of our earlier work on the Carthaginians and the Punic Wars, this is definitely inspired or influenced by the Battle of Cannae. It is visually similar in terms that you're going to have an army, not the same size, but a cavalry that will beat the lesser cavalry, drive them off the field, encircle the enemy, wheel the cavalry back in and just start pinning and murdering people as they stand. Now the difference between this and the Hannibal-Barca-Carthaginian phenomenal victory is, number one, Jon Snow does not outnumber Ramsay Snow. And secondly, Jon Snow will have a surprise cavalry charge from the Knights of the Vale, which are factored in and definitely change the situation of the battle, in a sense of hit the troops from behind and rout the whole situation. So let's just look a little bit more in depth into the Battle of the Bastards. This one that probably could have gone either way, but let's have a look at what the history machine thinks just based on the stats, the information, the commanders, and eventually the the cavalry advantage that they will get. How are we looking here?
1: For this one, uh, History Machine, I think rather appropriately, given that the whole battle was set up for a slight mirror image where you have the two bastards of the main northern lords. It's gone open field. The Boltons should you know, have the advantage of Winterfell. They give that up and fight an open battle. So it has this as a 50-50 chance beforehand. Oh, wow. Final results, though, interestingly... The stats look a bit like what you'd have expected if it was Ramsay on the winning side, because massive casualties dealt, commanders killed and everything like that. It's, it's very, very bloody. It's definitely one of the bloodier ones on both sides, but um, particularly for the losing side, they lost about 50% more than was expected.
0: It's an absolute massacre at the end. Ramsay Snow is defeated, Winterfell is retaken by the Starks. The status quo is returned to normal. We're back onto the main timeline.
1: It is probably, I will say as well, it's probably one of Jon Snow's only battles in which the History Machine really felt like this was one that he wasn't expected to win. And while it was bloody, he did win it, so...
0: By the skin of his teeth, but they did pull it out. So, with the Battle of Winterfell and the Battle of the Bastards aside... Daenerys has sailed west. She's arrived in Westeros. Her forces will take Casterly Rock. Meanwhile, the forces of Queen Cersei Lannister, under the command of Jaime Lannister, will sack Highgarden. This is going to lead, after this, to the first battle in centuries in Westeros to have a dragon. And this is the Battle of the Gold Road, where the Lannister forces are defeated swiftly by a combination of Dragonfire and Dothraki horsemen. Let's take a look at the Battle of the Gold Road.
1: So, uh... Yeah, we reintroduced dragons with the Battle of the Gold Road, and as a result, we reintroduced the history machine having a totally lopsided prediction. <laughs> it had Daenerys winning this one 99.5% odds.
0: Now, that's even factored in that they did have scorpions in the artillery. Still just thought that, no, dragon's the way to go.
1: Yeah. I mean, scorpions, yeah, while well, they'd prove effective later on, you know, that's probably where the 0.5 basically comes from, is is the scorpions, but... Uh, does not consider this one remarkable. Despite the mass casualties dealt out, it was almost entirely, every stat across the board, it was 2 expectation. Mm-hmm. As well as expected, given that she had dragons.
0: Almost guaranteed to win. That's our Daenerys Targaryen flying in there, burning up the Lannisters. After that, we do have the Great War. Daenerys will head north and she will take on the Night King in a small engagement with three of her dragons In the process, losing one of them. This is going to be an interesting battle because we have a mixture of whites, White Walkers, and effectively the Night King involved. Now, where the history machine would look at this is it looks at conventional armies and says you don't have a chance. But now it's a different situation because it's trying to factor in things like, you know, what is a White Walker? And how well are they doing? And there's three dragons. So it's, we're looking at something a little bit more comparable in terms of it's magic against magic to a certain extent. So let's take a look at that battle here. Daenerys Targaryen loses one of her three.
1: I think this is where we begin to see hints that people were going to be a bit disappointed with the last season. (laughs) Uh, The Night King, you know, like, yes, he took out a dragon, but he didn't win this battle. He didn't take out everything. Yes. And so the history machine gave him like a two-thirds chance to win this. Mm -hmm. It expected him to take out way more guys. It expected him to kill some commanders, and he just didn't do it. He didn't pull it off. This is definitely one of the big underperformances for the Night King. Whether it is that he didn't succeed in... in killing everything or whether it's just that the history machine hasn't figured out how to handle Mm -hmm. the undead but yeah this one is considered big underperformance on his part
0: considering the more you talk about it the more i'm thinking geez the night king could have had three dragons if he played his cards right yeah
1: Uh, that's how the history machine and you have you kind of forget as well like the dragons are incredibly impressive but they're still regarded as a single unit they're not commanders and of themselves or whatever so it doesn't necessarily come across in the stats that a dragon has died, it doesn't... The history machine doesn't know that that's a big, big deal. Yes. Uh, strategically, it just knows tactically, well, they lost a unit. The
0: the history machine cannot measure strategic information. So the, the strategic importance of losing a dragon...
1: It certainly doesn't know how to recognize that that dragon will also be resurrected for the opposing side.
0: Even though it will have a dragon for the Night King in a later battle, which is, you know, gives it a good, a good chance. So we'll move on to one of the last battles the Battle of Fire and Ice. And this is where Winterfell is supported by a nearly totally unified Westeros in terms of who's going to go up north and try and take on the Night King. How are we looking for this army of White Walkers and dragons and resurrected giants and resurrected units taking on a huge combined force of pretty much as I said, almost all of Westeros standing there with certain comparable weapons and very importantly, two dragons.
1: Yeah, this one it gave it as, as 50-50, which I was surprised by. But then again, you, you know, I know Massive Undead Army, but the History Machine, it hasn't fully comprehended mm-hmm. what to do with that. Yes. As well as the fact that, you know, dragons still count for so much. And really it's, it's one of the few mm-hmm. battles where it's dragons going up against something and it's not like a 99% chance to win. So yeah. really, I th- kind of think about it that way. Fair enough.
0: So we we found almost a hard counter to dragons in terms of, listen, if you've got to take on dragons, you better have some undead king who's, you know, thousands of years old and can kill and resurrect other dragons. Otherwise, bring some other dragons to the battlefield or don't come. So
1: this one, uh, one of the bloodiest battles, though, in, in, in the database, uh, both sides lost a good bit more casualties than expected. Uh, the Winterfell side lost about 15% more than expected and the undead lost... About 60% more than expected. Though, of course, some of those were people resurrected from the other side. So really, you know, it's still probably net. Yeah, that's reasonable. Night King himself being killed at this was definitely unexpected. That was like 80%. Uh...
0: Well, then again, Cahill, no one was expecting that Arya Stark to jump out of nowhere and stab him. <laughs> so the history machine didn't think that was going to happen either. Yeah.
1: With, with this dead, it's worth bringing up the overall stats for the Night King. And um, yeah, it's it's not looking good for him, no. really you know three wins out of five battles wins over expectation it's just it's like slightly below average casualties dealt over expectation fair enough 30 percent more than you'd expect casualties sustained he takes 20 percent less even though let's face it he can spare the men yes you know so the fact that he saves that many you know that's that's pretty good going mm-hmm. really unremarkable other than that and uh i suppose this thing you know it measures things tactically it doesn't totally take in the whole magic thing or the the undead thing so and really all the history machine sees is a commander that has maybe just gotten a bit sloppy um <laughs> over these years and years of not having to worry about you know losing men or not really even even having to worry about losing individual battles because he can just rebound he can just you know resurrect move guy, on. keep on plowing along so it's it's more like aiming to get maximum casualties than necessarily winning battles but um you know what, even, even in terms of casualties dealt over expectation, it's high, but he's no Tywin Lannister.
0: <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on to the last battle in our database, and at the time of recording, it was taken from the last episode, uh, The Bells, and this is the Siege of King's Landing, where if you want to be informed with it, uh, once again, lots of spoilers here, Daenerys will march her army to King's Landing... Uh, There's going to be a certain amount of ballisticas on the wall, which have proven to take out one of her other dragons, which is a surprising naval upset, but that's a bit of a problem in itself. She's now going to take on the Iron Fleet again, and in the process will burn that to the ground, will move on and take out a lot of the army before immediately getting the surrender of the remaining inhabitants of King's Landing, only to go on a sacking rampage. So let's talk about the Siege of King's Landing.
1: The history machine here, again, another one that's, despite having dragons, it's only slightly above 50% odds for Daenerys. The scorpions we mentioned were one of the few things that could make a dent.
0: And a dragon. Against
1: dragons, as well as fortifications. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there were so, so many in King's Landing, so many scorpions, such huge defenses. It felt like it should have made a difference, but um, History Machine didn't get the note that between episodes, scorpions were nerfed, reload time (laughs) slowed, damage reduced, accuracy reduced. So they did not have the impact the History Machine was expecting. The casualties dealt by Daenerys' side were almost 50% higher than expected. The casualties sustained 40% lower, like way, way fewer. I think like many of the viewers, the History Machine agrees, the Golden Company did all. <laughs> Let's face it. They should have brought elephants. It was a bit, it was a bit, a bit anticlimactic. And, uh, obviously as well, given the number of character deaths, casualties, uh, the commander kills dealt above expectation were, uh, you know, amongst the highest of any battle. Um, so really this was just like, despite giving it pretty close to 50-50 at the beginning, this one ended up a totally lopsided battle from the History Machine's point of view. Wow. Uh, like, very much in, in Daenerys' favour uh-huh. and definitely one of the ones that pushes up her overall rankings.
0: Ah, oh, excellent, excellent. Okay, so we've come to the end of our database and we've talked about quite a few of our commanders and had a brief history, effectively, of Game of Thrones, the battles, and who's involved. So, Carl, let's wrap this up and do a nice little top five to mention the commanders we've looked at so far with the data we have and the time we've allocated for the AI, the history machine to crunch the numbers. How are we looking? Who is our number five top commander?
1: I'm going to give you a top six because there are two clusters basically that are formed around certain scores and I think it's within the margin of error so I'm just going to I'm going to group them together. So working within that anyway, sixth we have Bobby B, Robert Baratheon, 0.21 wins over expectation, Yes, six wins out of seven battles. And as I mentioned, if he had not lost that one battle, he would have been in the top cluster. Damn the Turleys. However, narrowly above him by 0.01 is the guy who beat him that battle. Randall, two wins out of three battles, wins Mm -hmm. over expectation, 0.22. Casualties. Dealt only average, and really that was his undoing is that he had no follow up after beating Rob yes. Baratheon. He wasn't able to take out the army mm-hmm. in terms of actually just winning battles, getting the win where he wasn't expected. Randall Tarley did a good job at number five. Wow. And uh, kind of joint then with his score slightly above it. And, you know, I'll put him ahead because his other stats are much, much better. Spannis the Manus Baratheon nice just slightly superior to robert easily the best score of anyone who had more than one loss okay as i said earlier if he hadn't if he had won the blackwater not only would he have won the iron throne he would have also won this episode's ranking oh you know he, he would have leapt out in front of that cluster
0: yes and then we're looking at our number three
1: number three again really i think he should be number one and he might come out as number one given enough time by 0.001 that he's third instead of joint first. Tywin Lannister, seven wins out of seven battles, 0.352 wins over expectation, takes 31% fewer casualties than you'd expect, deals out 42.6% more casualties than you expect, a massive massive figure mm-hmm. more than anyone else. Takes out the enemy commander like 58% at the time. Jesus. Uh, biggest unbeaten run, mm. you know, veteran of so many different wars, Tywin Lannister. But let's face it, he's arguably number one.
0: Yeah, even if we factor in the rest, as I said, this is only measuring his tactical ability. So if we did look at trying to combine the idea of his strategic, his logistics abilities, his uh, overall just general management, how well he's able to, uh, you know, everything. Out of all the aspects of of a human being, he probably should be acknowledged as the best commander in Westeros. But looking at these stats... He's a very narrow third place. This is like Olympic level people beating each yeah. other by milliseconds. He's come in third place as the best tactical commander. So that's saying a lot.
1: He's, he's basically, he's like the bronze medalist who you kind of feel when we go back and review and the doping tests come out later, he might like get bumped up to a gold medal at some like
0: yeah. ceremony
1: down the road when the others are ruled out. But like
0: narrowly beaten out. So yeah. who is looking at our number two? So number two, on the basis of
1: the secondary stats, because the wins over expectation is the same for the top two, we have Rob Stark at nice. 0.353 wins over expectation, takes 37% fewer casualties than expected, which is one of the best yes. of anyone and vitally important to his overall strategy. He deals out only slightly above average casualties, but you know what? When it's a civil war, you don't necessarily want to wipe out true. the enemy army because you have to deal with the survivors later on. You know, they you don't want them to hate you. So that's true. That's that true. could also be interpreted as strategic. You know, and as well, like yeah. it was clear he wanted to win battles. He didn't want to kill everyone. It was. It, it fits his character. It does. It does. At number one, who arguably got there really by being a sub commander under you know who, who basically because he fought for numbers two and three at different points. We have ruse Bolton. Point three five three wins over expectation. Yes. Suffers. So basically the same percentage casualties as rob stark takes about 37 percent fewer than you'd expect but deals out a massive 30 percent more casualties than you'd expect and mm-hmm. kills the enemy commander about 40 percent of the time kills or captures them so really he's he's like rob stark who does not give a shit about killing everybody <laughs> like he's perfectly happy to go ahead and do that
0: that's fair enough well that's it um, that really feels like a, a bolton thing to do so, looking, that's our top five for... Now, uh, we will mention as well, these are possibly subject to change because yeah. the database is only been running for a couple of days. It normally takes a longer time to generate more accurate and, and compelling information. We'll probably have a little bit like of a patch update release.
1: We will try and put it up on this website, though, because I we know will. everyone listening here, they'll have their own faves. They'll want to see how they did in the rankings. Of and course, yeah. I would like it to be a bit more accurate before we put it up. So I'll, I'll run it. Hopefully, then we'll have a bit of a clearer view and the history machine will know a bit more how to handle the different compositions that exist in Westeros.
0: Yeah, and, and deal with it a little bit nicer and, and give a little bit more information. Well, that's how we're looking. So our number one from uh, for now is going to be Roose Bolton, followed by second place, Rob Stark, third place, Tywin Lannister, fourth place, Stannis Baratheon. But those top four are possibly subject to change just based on a little bit more information being run a little bit longer just to kind of crack out more accurate details. But that's how we're looking right now, and that's the figures we're going to propose as we have them and as we see them in front of them. Of course, there are, as we mentioned earlier, exceptions. Should Stannis have won the Blackwater, he's going to be the Trailblaze leader. Should Robert Baratheon have not lost at Ashford, he'd also be a joint first in that situation. He'd be considered probably a little bit better than Bruce Bolton. But these are the cards that are dealt. These are things that happen. Sometimes we have upsets, sometimes we don't. But that's what we got for our Game of Thrones, and that's what we're going to put forward. So I'd just like to say thanks very, very much for listening. If you are interested in hearing any more, we have some earlier episodes as well. This is just our special bonus one. We want to go a little bit into depth about the Song of Ice and Fire and really kind of put forward a few figures for the commanders and see what they look like, whose standouts. Considering who's left remaining as commanders, we've actually got very few. The brightest and the best have either been assassinated or killed on the field. We're kind of left with people who aren't that great in terms of tactical ability. I want to also give a couple of shout outs to a few people. The first one, please, is to our artist who never fails to produce quality artwork, and that is Joe Neary, who is an artist based in Galway in Ireland. And if you want, you can follow him on Instagram with Dead Red Zebra. Uh, he actually commissions a lot of artwork, so feel free to contact him. He's um, a fantastic, talented artist, and he's really prov- provided us with quality artwork time and time again, and I can't thank him enough for that a few other people. I'd like to thank the people who are involved in the various Game of Throne wikis. Without you, I would have not been able to pull together this data. The wiki of thrones, and also we had the awoiaf.westeros.org, all vital in making this episode. And they provided some very useful information, consistent data that was used for this database. So other than that, thanks very much for listening. We are working on the latest episode on the Persians as well, which we'll probably release in a couple of weeks or so. We're still just cranking some numbers for that, but we said we do the little bonus one, Game of Thrones. So, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to everybody, and you'll hear from us again. So, I've been Niall, and I've been Call. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again soon.
1: Valer Morgulis.